read for us our passage, which is found in Colossians chapter 3. So if you have your own Bibles there with you, you can turn to Colossians 3. It'll also be on the screens or in your bulletins as well. And I want to read our passage for us this morning. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. If you will bow to me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word, which shows us that through Christ we can have life, that through his blood our sins are forgiven, that we are reconciled to you. And Lord, that's why we celebrate this morning through baptism and through communion. Lord, we thank you that your word is living, that it's active, that it is not dead and, and irrelevant for us, but Lord, that through your spirit it comes alive and it has power. And so, Lord, we pray for Pastor Kevin as he faithfully proclaims your word. Lord, give him clarity of mind. And Lord, we pray for ourselves, God, that as we engage your word, that your spirit would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are humble and willing to be shaped and molded and conformed into the image of your son, Jesus. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you for being here and worship with us today. Uh, some of you know this. Our, our family's had a little bit of a tough time lately. We've had some things going on. And, and so last night I spoke with my wife and said, hey, I, I'm just not really sure about preaching tomorrow. My mind's kind of scattered. I'm sort of all over the place. And she's the encourager. She reminded me that God is good. And she reminded me that the gospel is still true. And I said, yeah, but I don't know if I'll be true. <laughs> you know, and I feel like I'm always one sermon away, one bad sermon away from starting a cult, you know, or something. And she said, hey, um, God's got this, you know, you're fine, you're good. So if I'm not, please forgive me. We've just had a whole lot um, going on. So uh, if you need to pull me off the stage and if Ryan needs to finish the sermon, we can just uh, you know, do that. If you see Ryan leaving, you'll know that, that uh, why he's left. Uh, in 2019... 
Uh, Chris Pratt got into a Twitter war with Elliot Page. If you're not familiar with those individuals, Chris Pratt is an actor, one of the uh, stars of Guardians of the Galaxy. Elliot Page is the actor from Juno. Chris Pratt tweeted about the positive influence that his church has had on him in Los Angeles and went on a late night television show where he talked about this and then tweeted about it. Uh, In response to his tweet, Elliot Page said, yes, but your church is also famously anti-LGBTQ, so how about responding to that? To which Chris Pratt did, and in part of his response, he said this. He said, my faith is important to me, but no church defines me or my life, and I am not a spokesman for any church or any group of people. Now, I'm not being critical of Chris Pratt. He is an excellent actor. Elliot Page is as well. However, this particular statement comes dangerously close to saying that I can be a follower of Christ, but it does not determine what I believe, how I think, or how I behave. My faith does not define me. I am still my own person. I can follow Christ, and still live and act like and think like the rest of the world. The passage that Ryan read earlier teaches us that the exact opposite is true. That when we follow Christ, it very much determines how we think and how we feel, how we act, how we behave. The passage that Ryan read comes from the book of Colossians. Uh, We have been studying this book over the past several weeks. We call it a book. Originally, it was a letter that was written to a church in the ancient city of Colossae. Uh, A guy named Paul, who was a famous missionary, wrote the church, uh, wrote this letter sometime around 50 AD uh, to a church that he had never met. He did not know these people, but through a mutual friend named Epaphras, he discovered that some individuals, likely from another city, had come into that church, and they had uh, began to teach to those church members that Jesus was not enough. They basically said something like this, when you follow Christ, that's great, that gets your foot in the door, but to really be accepted by God, it's following Christ plus following these rules, observing these rituals, following these certain regulations. And if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be fulfilled in life, it's Jesus plus all these other things. And the theme of Paul's letter is essentially this. It's not Jesus plus anything. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. It's not Jesus plus rules, Jesus plus regulations. It's just Jesus. The first two chapters of Colossians, Paul spends time defending Jesus as the Son of God and how this gives him supremacy over sin, over all of creation, and how Jesus, because God raised him from the dead, is the bridge between us and God. That there's no other bridge that works, there's no other solution to sin, there's no other way to salvation that it's only through Christ, and this is proven because God raised him from the dead. A couple of weeks ago, I I described this as the linchpin in our faith. If the resurrection is not true, everything falls apart. 
Everything else does not work without the resurrection. But if the resurrection is true, then everything we talk about in Colossians and everything else we talk about, it's worth giving your life to if the resurrection is true. Now, those who deny the resurrection, they typically do so with this argument. They say something like, well, there were these followers of Christ and then Jesus was killed and they said, oh no, he's gone. We've got to keep the whole Jesus movement going. Let's say that he came back to life, that God raised him from the dead. So imagine with me for just a moment, if you were one of those followers of Christ, let's imagine that you were one of the apostles. Let's, let's just say John. So you're John. You follow Christ around for three years, roughly. You've seen him perform miracles You've believed that he really is more than just a great prophet, that he's more than just some incredible teacher, and you believe that Jesus is going to raise up this group of people, an army, some movement to overthrow the Romans or maybe to overthrow the corrupt Jewish religious system, which is in bed with the Romans. I mean, you believe that Jesus is going to do this, but then one day Jesus is dead. And so you think, well, what do I do now? What do we do now? Jesus is gone. We really want to keep this whole thing going. What do we do? And so you get together with the other apostles and you guys all talk about it and you say, hey, I, I know. Let's say that he rose from the dead. If we say that he rose from the dead, then we can tell everyone he is still alive and we can keep the Jesus Ministries Incorporated movement going and everybody can still, you know, follow Jesus, even though he died, if we just say that he rose from the dead. So all of you, all 12, we've got to agree to it, right? We've all got to agree to this lie. Spit, shake on it, okay? You all agree. We're going we're gonna to tell this story. But it's not just those, right? Because there were others who said they followed, uh, saw the risen Christ, so they have to agree. So Mary and Martha, and Lazarus, and Nicodemus, all these people that you see. And in fact, Paul says that there were over 500 people who claimed to have seen the risen Christ. So each of these apostles, they have to go to almost 50 people each and say to all 50, you've got to keep this lie going. You can't cave. It, it, it is this massive conspiracy, but you've got to stick with this story. So let me ask you this question. You're John. You're one of the apostles. The Romans don't like this story. The Jewish leaders do not like this story. They're getting upset. They're starting to threaten you. They're going to kick you out of the temple if you won't shut up. They're going to take away your fortune if you won't quit telling this story. Oh, it's gotten even worse. Now they're threatening your life. At what point would you crack? At what point would you say, ah, never mind? I mean, if it's all a lie, I'm going to crack pretty early. You threaten to take away my fortune, I'll probably, I'll probably give it up there. If it's all a lie, certainly if you put a sword to my neck, I will sing like a canary and I'll blame it all on Peter. <laughs> Peter came up with the whole thing. It's not my fault. And yet these individuals were willing to die for this fact. How could it have been a lie if all of these individuals said, we witnessed it, we saw it, and we're willing to die for it? 
I read a quote a while back by Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was the special counsel to President Nixon uh, during the Watergate affair. Chuck Colson went to prison. Chuck Colson later became a follower of Christ. And here's what he said. He said, I know how impossible it is for a group of people, even some of the most powerful in the world, to maintain a lie. The Watergate cover-up lasted only a few weeks before the first conspirator broke and turned state's evidence. So one person makes a claim and they, they continue with that lie. Okay, that's understandable. Hundreds do it. It doesn't make sense. Paul here in this passage is saying, look, the resurrection of Christ means that he's more than just a great teacher, more than just a great prophet, but he is Lord and he is more than enough for us to be able to find salvation. It's not Jesus plus all these other things, it's just Jesus. For two chapters, that's what he defines, that's what he teaches, that's what he explains to the Colossians. And then in chapter 3, he turns and says, salvation's all by grace. However, this gospel has an effect on our lives. You don't do anything to earn salvation, but when you embrace the gospel, it changes you. It changes who you are. Here's a way to phrase it. The same Jesus who is enough to save you is the same Jesus who's also enough to change you. That's what we're going to look at today. If you've got your message map with you, you'll notice at the top it says Jesus is more than enough to change. The first thing that Paul talks about is Jesus is more than enough to change my feelings and my thoughts. Notice what Paul wrote. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So notice here, Paul talks about three things, three realities that are true in our lives. Number one, you have been raised with Christ. That is a past event. When you become a follower of Christ, your old way of life is gone It is buried, it is dead, and you are raised to new life with Christ. So that is a past reality. The second thing he says, your life is now hidden with Christ. And again, when Christ who is your life, that is a present reality. At this moment, if you follow Christ, your life is hidden with Christ. You are wrapped up in Christ. That is your present reality. And then he says, then you will appear with him in glory. That is a future promise. So past reality, you were raised with Christ. Present reality, you are hidden. You were uh, encompassed by Christ. You are in Christ. Future promise, you will appear with him in glory. When you take your last breath on this planet, you get to be in the presence of Christ. You get to receive a glorious body, and you are in the presence of Christ. So Paul here says, based on these truths, then here's what you need to do. First of all, set your hearts on things above. Do not allow your affections to be tied completely to the things of this world. Why is that? They will disappoint you. 
Your affections that are tied, that are tethered to the things of this world, you will go up and down throughout your life if your hope is based on the things of the world. If your hope is based on the outcome of a football game, maybe you did well yesterday, maybe you did not. Maybe you were excited, maybe you were depressed. You know, and if you were excited, just know there will come other seasons where you will get depressed. You know, if, if you were depressed, you know, other seasons where maybe it'll be good, you're, you're just up and down. The things of the world will constantly disappoint. If you are so tied to earthly things, your emotions will live on a roller coaster. It doesn't mean that we're not uh, allowed to enjoy the things of the world. It doesn't mean that we don't get down when things don't go our way, when things hurt us. It just means that our ultimate hope does not rest on those things. So Paul says, look, do not set your heart, your affections, your emotions on the things of the earth, but set them on the things above. Then secondly, set your minds on things above. The heart represents your emotions. Your mind is your way of thinking. Do you think in a gospel-centered way? Is your mind determined by biblical truth or the way you think, the way you view the world, is it determined by the culture around us? And Paul here says, allow your mind, the way you think, to be saturated with the gospel, to be saturated with biblical truth. Uh, the name Norma McCorvey may not be familiar to you, but the name that she went by in 1973 undoubtedly will. She was Jane Roe in Roe versus Wade in the landmark 1973 Supreme Court decision uh, to make uh, abortion on demand constitutional. Uh, she was pregnant and she sued the district attorney uh, of the county of Dallas in Texas to have an abortion. Uh, she won that case, legalizing abortion. Norma McCorvey was a major abortion rights advocate for 20 years, until 20 years after that case, she became a follower of Christ. And for the rest of her life, she became a pro-life advocate. Why was that? Why did Jane Roe who was the central figure in Roe v. Wade, why did she suddenly become pro-life? It wasn't that the facts of the case changed. It wasn't that she looked back and said, well, we, we got this wrong. I've changed my mind. It was because she became a follower of Christ and her worldview changed. And she became, uh, began to see the preciousness of life and became a pro-life advocate. That's what the gospel does. The gospel changes how we feel and it changes how we think as well. Paul here says, allow it to do that in your life. Set your heart on things above, set your mind on things above. Second thing he says is that Jesus is more than enough to change my behavior. So it's not just how I feel, it's not just how I think, but it's how I act as well. Notice what he wrote in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. 
So Paul here says, put to death these things that belong to the earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, all have to do with um, sexual practices. Greed, which is the lust for more stuff, more money. Um, He calls idolatry because we begin to worship those things. And here's what Paul says, put to death those things. That word put to death in the Greek is one word, necru. Uh, We get our word necrosis from it. Necrosis is when a part of the body dies, when the cells die off. Paul here says, necru, those desires. Put to death is not language that's strong enough. Necru meant to kill decisively, to put to death with urgency. To necru meant to really kill something with urgency. Uh, About 20 years ago, before Katie and I were married, I was asked to go to a little church in Wasilla, Alaska, uh, to preach for a week, uh, half a week of sermons there. Uh, Wasilla is located about an hour north of Anchorage, and so I flew there on a Saturday. I preached in the church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, preached Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and then the revival services or the whatever they called it, the uh, renewal services ended on Wednesday night. And the pastor took me from Wasilla down to Anchorage to the airport. At that time, it may still be the case, I'm not sure, but at that time, all the flights going out of Anchorage back to the United States all left around midnight. So we left at midnight, flew from there to Seattle, then from Seattle to Charlotte, where I lived at the time. So I got to Charlotte about two o'clock in the afternoon. I had an event at church that night, a dinner event that I had to be at. It was two o'clock. The event was at six. I knew that I had about two or three hours that I could just crash and get a nap because I had been up for about 30 hours straight. So I walk into the condo where I lived at the time, took my suitcase, I dropped it on the floor, I walked through the den, headed to my bedroom, and I looked in the corner of the den, and there, curled up in the corner of my den, was a snake. Yeah, okay, a couple of things. First of all, I hate snakes. All real Christians do. Just read Genesis 3. They are all evil creatures. The other thing you need to know before I continue with the story is later I would learn it was a garden snake about a foot long. However, in that moment, in my mind, it was about six feet in length, and it had fangs that were five inches each coming out of its mouth. That's how it appeared to me. I really wanted to just climb into the bed. I did not have time to deal with that. I was exhausted. I needed to sleep before I went to this event. There was a snake in the corner of my den. And so I realized I had two options. One option was just to ignore it, to go get in the bed, let the snake hang out there, hope it didn't do anything, just go to bed, go to sleep, get up, go to the event, come back and deal with it later. There was no way I was going to do that because I knew the moment I went to sleep, that evil creature would slither over to my bed, up into my bed, wrap itself around my neck before putting its fangs right in my forehead. I mean, that's just, that's what they do. So option one's off the table. 
Option two was to kill it, to deal with it right then. So I went to my bedroom closet where I kept my golf clubs. I pulled out a three iron. They don't make three irons anymore. Everybody hits hybrids now, but back then they made three irons. I pulled out my three iron. I went over to the corner of my den. I raised that three iron high above my head and I necrude that snake. I decisively killed that snake. I utterly slayed that snake. By the way, I then used that same three iron to pick it up and take its dead body outside and toss it into the grass and then double bolt the doors before I went back in and went to sleep. There was no way I was going to allow that snake to live in my condo. That is the picture that Paul paints here in this passage. Don't take these earthly desires, these sinful desires, and just let them hang out in the corner. Don't just put them in time out. Don't say, well, I can manage them. I can deal with them. I'm just going to let them hang out here because they will destroy you. They will climb into your bed, wrap themselves around your neck, and then sink their fangs deep into your forehead. Paul says, treat them like, like that. Utterly slay those desires. By the way here, he says, you used to walk in these ways. That was the life you once lived. That was the Roman culture. There were very few rules or taboos. Uh, the Romans, for them, basically anything goes. If it feels good, do it. That was their culture. The Romans would have loved America today. They would have fit right in here. Paul says, yes, that's exactly who you were. But now you're different. So put to death those desires. He then moves from what we would call sins of the flesh to sins of the spirit. And I'm going to give you a warning. The sins of the flesh, it's easy to preach against. The sins of the spirit are those sins that we can commit and still be considered good Christians. These are the sins that we do in church and we try to cover them up or we try to excuse them. Here's what Paul says. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, uh, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all." So Paul here lists the first three, which all have to do with anger. And Paul here says, look, anger is an issue of the heart. Someone who is always angry with the world, they're really angry with God. And they've blocked God out from doing something in their heart. The other have to do with our lips, with an ungoverned tongue, uh, speaking uh, ill of others, filthy language, gossip, all of those things. And again, Paul is saying, hey, if that is you, you're not letting God work on your heart. You're basically saying, God, I'm cold. I am cut off from letting you do what you need to do. Paul here says to rid yourselves of these things. The image is of taking off a dirty old rag and just throwing it away. It's so dirty, you can't give it to another family member. You can't pass it down. You can't donate it. it. All it's good for is to go in the trash. He says, rid yourselves of these things, 
of all of, of the sins of the flesh and the sins of the spirit. And then in verse 11, I love what Paul does here. Anytime he would begin to talk about these earthly desires or the sins of the spirit, people would immediately say, oh, so Paul, what you're saying is, is that to be accepted by God, we got to do these things. Paul always wants to go back to the idea of grace. It's all by grace. No, no, no. Jesus is going to change you. Jesus is going to do these things. But you are accepted and you are loved by God because of what he did, not what you do. You in this moment, if you are a follower of Christ, you are as loved as you will ever be by Jesus Christ. By, through Christ, God loves you just as much now as if tomorrow you commit the worst sin of your life. His love does not change. And that's what Paul does there. He says, look, in Christ, there is no Gentile. That's a non-Jew. There's, there's no Gentile or Jew. Circumcised, which is Jewish or uncircumcised. Barbarian, those were the individuals who lived in northern Europe um, above the Roman Empire. Uh, the Romans referred to them as barbarians. The Romans were very proud of the fact that they bathed and had an orderly society. Uh, Northern Europeans at this point were living in huts and running around in animal skins. And, and the Romans just, they called them barbarians. Uh, they, they thought they were better than them. And so he says, look, barbarians, there's no barbarians. Scythians, those were a group of people who lived in what is modern day Russia. And they were even worse than the barbarians. I mean, a barbarian would not invite a Scythian to a dinner party because a Scythian was below his social class. Paul here says, look, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, free or slave, it doesn't matter. The most level playing field in the world is right at the foot of the cross. That is the place where all of us are exactly the same. Sinners saved by grace. I have been on mission trips where I have seen individuals who I knew were millionaires worshiping next to individuals who probably had $3 to their name. I've been in Bible studies with individuals who grew up in church, never committed any major, major sins, in a Bible study next to a guy who had committed every sin known to man but then became a follower of Christ. And they're all on equal ground. At the foot of the cross, there's no rich or poor, educated, uneducated, Democrat or Republican. None of that. In Christ, we are all the same sinners saved by grace. So Paul here says, look, the gospel that saves you changes your feelings and thoughts. It changes your behavior. And then finally, it changes as well your character. Look at what Paul wrote. Therefore, as God's chosen people... Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So here Paul gives a list and and he says, throw off those other things, that dirty garment, throw it away, and then put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's a list that's very similar to one he gives in Galatians uh, that he calls the fruit of the Spirit. 
Someone who is a follower of Christ will exhibit these qualities in their life. Meaning that Christ doesn't just change your feelings and thoughts. It doesn't just change your outward behavior. But the gospel changes the core of who we are. So that we become people of compassion and kindness and humility and patience. And we're willing to bear with one another. We're willing to forgive because we've been forgiven a huge debt. It changes our character, the very nature of who we are. Here's what Paul is saying in this passage. The same Jesus who is more than enough to save you is more than enough to change you. And from the moment that you become a follower of Christ until the moment you draw your very last breath on this earth, God is working in you. The Holy Spirit is working in you to change you and to make you more like Christ. Let him do that in you.